I hope this past week has been a blessed week for you. At the end, uh, as, we, as we've been talking the last few weeks about being built to last, we've been looking at uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the core message of Jesus about his kingdom and how the kingdom is supposed to work. At the end of his message in chapter 7 of Matthew, he gives the audience a stern warning, and that warning plays out to every one of us. Obey these words, and your life will stand. Ignore these words, and it's going to crash around you. So we've been talking about being built to last. And as we look at these individual lines here, you can't look at them and kind of pick and choose which one you're going to obey. That would be like looking at your GPS instructions and saying, I like this line, this instruction. I don't like that one. I'm going to ignore that one and obey. The, I'll obey the first one and the fourth instruction and the eighth instruction, but all the others I'm going to ignore. If you do that, how many of you know you're not going to get where you want to go? You've got to obey every one of the instructions. And that's what we want to help ourselves understand is as we look inside of the Sermon on the Mount, it's an all-inclusive proposition to us, a deliverance to us of how to live inside of the kingdom of God. And one direction, especially in the Beatitudes, leads to a spot from which you will progress to the next one, and they all have to be followed. If you want to be an effective follower of Christ, really make an impact in the kingdom, then I would tell you you have to understand the four growth tracks that we need to grow on as believers and the necessity of each one of them. That's why we do starting point. And I would say to you, if you can't sit here today and go, oh, I know the four, star- I know the four tracks I've got to grow on. I know them. If you can't do that, you need to do one of two things. You either need to go and start taking starting point, or if you've been through starting point, you need to dig out your notes and go through them again. And then you need to ask yourself, am I applying myself into all four of these areas And do I understand them so that I can grow and be an effective Christian? If I'm going to be built to last, if I want to build my life so that it will last, then I need to obey the Sermon on the Mount. And so what we're doing right now is we're going through the Beatitudes on Sunday morning. We'll do that from now until the first weekend of September. And uh, on the first weekend of September, we'll, we'll wrap up the Beatitudes and we're going to have a Uh, kind of a party afterwards, so plan on sticking around for that. And uh, then we're going to go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount on Wednesday nights during Equip. And if you're really serious about this, we want to encourage you to come and be a part of those series on, on Wednesday night as well. Right now, I'd like to ask you to stand with me and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And I really want to thank John and Ryan for the last couple of weeks, normally when uh, we're taking some time, some downtime, 
we'll slip out of town and go to other churches and see what's happened in other places that we want to go see. Circumstances kept us from doing that the last couple of weeks. So we ended up coming, you know, to second service over here. Actually, went to first service at Jefferson last week and then came over here. And I really appreciate the words John and Ryan had to say. Didn't you? Didn't they do a great job for us? Yeah. <clears throat> You're going to be hearing a lot more out of these guys in the weeks ahead, and especially during Equip. They're going to be doing things on Wednesday nights, and uh, we just really appreciate both of them giving their time and their effort uh, to help us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be, they shall be satisfied. Uh, again, I would encourage you, if you miss one of these last three weeks, you can go online to calvaryspringfield.org, and they're all there. And I would encourage you to take, because these are all instruction points. They all lead us to another point. And as we understand them, as we walk in them, we get led to the very place that God would have us to be. Father, anoint this message today. Give us your freedom once again to share it, to communicate it, help us to get it. And Lord, I pray that where we need to be changed, we would be changed. Where we need to be convicted, we would be convicted. Where revelation needs to come in our life, that revelation would come into our life. Where we need to be encouraged, we would be encouraged. Father, whatever we need from you today, I pray you'd speak that into the lives of your children today as we open our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. For some reason, from, a, from a, being a very young man until now, I've always enjoyed looking at the inspiring characters of the Bible. Uh, the, the people of the Bible who uh, were really did, did great things in their lifetime for the glory of, the, of, of God's kingdom. I love to look at men like David and men like Paul and men like Peter and many others and, and study their lives. I, I, I've always found myself with this check as I read them because I, you discover as you read about their stories that God doesn't hold anything back. He tells the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, he reveals it all. He tells you where they did great. He tells you where they were not great. And, and some of that is a little bit comforting because they're not perfect men. And yet they're men after God's heart. And I have learned that in their imperfections, that these men who wanted to please God had one thing in common. They all wanted to please God. And when they would be confronted with their sin or their error, these were men who were willing to repent and didn't blame everybody else but looked at their own self in the mirror and were willing to repent and be formed into the image of God. At the heartbeat of men who are built to last, we don't find perfection. We find the desire towards perfection. That they, they keep moving. They learn their lesson and they keep moving forward towards being the men that God would have them to be. I've also learned to study the lives of men whose houses fell, men who were disappointing at the end of the day. At the top of that list, of course, would be Judas, who traveled with Jesus himself for three years, and yet at the end of the day, complete failure. 
There are others. You find at the very beginning of the Bible, you find Cain, that all he needed to do to be pleasing to God was obey God. And instead of obeying God, you see what you see is what is natural in the heart of those who want to do it their way instead of God's way and insist on their way instead of God's way. And I want to tell you, our culture's full of that today. Men who want to justify their actions, their feelings as right when it's not God's way. And those men at the end of the day cannot only decide, I'm not going to live God's way. They resent those who do. They resent those who do. And we see that in Cain's actions. We'll talk more about that uh, in the next couple of weeks. You can learn lessons of caution by reading about men like Esau and Korah and King Saul and others that were disappointing. But I would tell you, in, in my opinion, and all it is is, an, is my opinion, to me, the most disappointing of all of them is Solomon. Because you see, Solomon had every chance to be a Hall of Fame man of faith. He was the son of King David, who was a man after God's own heart. He was raised in the king's home. He had the best education of his day and was filled with insight. He would himself write three books of the Bible. He would write the Song of Solomon, many believe, before he was king. He would write many, many of the Proverbs that we read today come from the writings of Solomon. And eventually, towards the end of his reign, he would write the book of Ecclesiastes. He would build the temple, and he would honor God with a great celebration and dedication. And when God himself asked him what he wanted, he would ask for the right thing and pray the right prayer. And God would answer that prayer, and he would reign in wisdom for most of his reign. Yet after all of these accomplishments and all of these opportunities that Solomon had, when we look in the New Testament, we don't find his name mentioned as one of the great men of faith. His name is strangely absent. And I think we see the seed of his crash in the very first chapter of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, he writes, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is under heaven. And it was an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. See, I, I think one, the change of one word there would change the direction. He says, I applied my heart to seek out and to search out by wisdom. If that word would have been changed to I applied my heart to seek out and to search through God, through God's eyes, through God's will, I think Solomon's life would have been a different life. In the 12 chapters of, of Ecclesiastes, he will tell us of all of his pursuits to find purpose. He will pursue wisdom to find purpose and find it lacking. 
He will give up on wisdom and pursue folly and live a life that's frivolous for a time to try to find purpose, and he finds it empty. He would pursue it in pleasure. And at the end of all of these things, he would write meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. He would pursue gain and success. He would pursue fame. He would pursue fortune. He would pursue accomplishments, and he would pursue learning, and he would have success in the pursuit of them. And yet at the end of the day, he would write them all as meaningless. It was during this time that we read in the, in the, in the, in the chronicles of his life of his slow turn from fearing God and trusting God into direct disobedience to God into doing things that God had clearly told him not to do. And one of the clear demarcations of his obedience was that instead of trusting God to keep the kingdom, to protect the kingdom, to, that, that, that God had established the kingdom of Israel and would protect it, he went out and in his own wisdom, he began to marry for treaty's sake, he would get to the other kingdoms and he would take a princess, take one of, their, one, of the, one of the king's daughters and marry her for the sake of forming treaties with these other nations. And when these women, this direct, direct contradiction to what God had told him to do and not to do, and when these women that he married came to his household, they brought with them their idols and their false forms of worship. And when he had children with them, their influence into, their, into the children's lives became greater than Solomon's influence into their lives. And for us, what we discover is that our only hope for Solomon in his wandering from the things of God and for his eternity is found in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, where he writes in chapter 12, the end of the matter, after, uh, uh, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. So he's had this revelation at the end of it all. But by this time, the seed has been planted. The actions have been sown. It's a very, very short time after Solomon's death that the kingdom is divided in two. With two of the tribes going one direction and ten of the tribes going the other. The kingdom of Israel will have a series of disobedient kings, of kings who completely ignore the direction and the word of God. And Judah will have a mixture of, of obedient and disobedient kings, but eventually both come under judgment and both are carried away in exile. The house has been built on sand, and great is the crash of it. It's important to note that Jesus didn't say that the builder crashes. 
He doesn't say when the storm comes, the winds blow and beat against the house, that the builder crashes. What he says is this. He says the house that he built crashes in the storm. What does that mean? It means that the things that we establish, the things that we care about the most, that if we don't build on the right foundation with our families and with our children and with those places that we influence, it's going to crash. I've seen churches do that. Get off center from obedience to God's word, and it's not long until great is the crash of it. I've seen families do that. We're off center from God's word, disobedient to God's word, ignoring God's word, trying to figure it out in their own wisdom. The day comes when they look up, and great has been the crash of it. Because the crash is going to come someday when we're not built on the, on the rock. If you're wondering why your house is weather-beaten, it would be a good thing to study the Sermon on the Mount closely. To stop blaming everybody else. To stop making excuses about the world around us. And to say, you know what? God promised me that if I build on the rock, my house is going to last. Why is my house so weather-beaten? What's going on here? What do I need to change? If you're a young person in this room and you're beginning to build your house, you're beginning to build your future, maybe you're a young couple and you're, you're beginning to build your family and you've got children that you're raising, this is a good study for you. They're looking to say, you know what? I, when I, when I, when, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I want my children to love and serve God. Renee and I, when we, were, when we were a young couple with young children in our home, our desire, our desire was this. We want our children to know and love God. We didn't care about anything. We knew if they knew and loved God, all the other stuff would work out. All the other things. They would find God's place for them. They would find God's will for them. We knew we wanted them to love and serve God. But for that to happen, we have to build our house on the rock. The Beatitudes show the self-view, then the character of the follower who is built to last. But again, I would tell you, you have to look at the whole truth in the place. You can't pick and choose things out of here. You've got to take all of it. You've got to look at all of it and say, I've got to bring all of this into my life. Listen, this is just like a mighty tree. The trunk and the limbs and the fruit don't come first. You don't just go out someday and all of a sudden, there's a trunk of a tree in your backyard, fully grown and fully developed, with branches and fruit on it. No, long before the, the branches come, long before the trunk begins to develop, long before you see fruit, the seed has to be planted. The seed has to be there, and the roots have to begin to grow. The rest grow in proportion to the roots. Now, these last couple of weeks... As we've been listening to, 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 to Ryan and to John, they've been working on the roots. They've been telling us about how we need to, as, as we talked the first week, how we need to see who God is and recognize our condition before him, how we have to mourn about that condition, how we have to be meek before God in that condition. And as we start seeing God in ourselves clearly, we begin to get in a place for, for us to really see. So here's the deal. You've got to settle this. 
You've got to settle this. <clears throat> this is going to be uncomfortable. You've got to look at me and go, I'm not right up here. Have you ever seen some, some person and, and you love them and they're making some, and they're just making just some bonehead decision that you and your experience know this is going to train wreck them. And you're trying to talk to them. You're trying to convince them that what they're doing is wrong or what they're doing isn't going to help them, that the way they're seeing things isn't right. And you're trying to help them get there. And they're just looking at you through the blindness of their thinking and their life experience. And you're going, listen, buddy, I've, been, I've, been, I, you know, I've said this so many times. Listen, uh, I'm, you know, at that time I'd say, I'm 40, you're, you're, you're 20. Do you think you're going to learn anything in the next 20 years? Maybe I already have. Let me help you. Let me help you. Not make mistakes. Let me help you escape those mistakes. Because you know their thinking's not right. You know they, they don't have all the experience. They don't have any, to see it right to make the right decision. That's one of the big jobs of moms and dads. To, to look at our lovely little children and go, they're just kids. Which means they don't think right. They just don't think, they don't see it. They don't get it yet. And the kid's trying to be an adult. And you're looking at them going, I know you're trying, man, but you you still, you're still going to bed at this time. You're still going to do your home. You're still, because you're not thinking right. You don't have it yet. You don't understand the disciplines of all of that yet. That's okay. That's what you're supposed to. It's sad when you're 25 and you're still there. Are you with me? Here's what we got to settle. This is what God is saying to us. He's saying, look at me clearly and understand this. We don't think the same. And you don't think right yet. I've got to settle that. I've got to settle. I've got to stop arguing with God. And I've got to start living and believing what he says is true. Here's the second thing I've got to settle. I don't feel right yet. My feeler is broken. My feeler... Oh, I love him so much. Yeah, your feeler's broken. Oh, this feels like the right thing to do. Yeah, your feeler is, remember this, your feeler is broken. To walk through life trusting your feelings is to trust something that is broken. That's hard for us to face sometimes. It's hard for us to get. We've all seen people doing that where they feel like doing something, it feels right to them, and they're going to, they are, you know, Dead set, they're going to do it. Their feeler's broken. And the sooner I come to that conclusion, as sooner I realize I don't think right and I don't feel right because I am broken, the sooner you'll start putting your full trust in God to help you see right and to help you feel right. And the sooner you'll come to the conclusion of, I can't fix this on my own. I can't fix the way I think. I can't fix the way I feel. I need the presence of God in my life. And until then, I am in big trouble. So we mourn our condition and we become meek before God, which makes us a people who says, all right, God, whatever you want, whatever you say, I'm going to do. Because you've got it right, and I don't. Have you settled that? 
Have you come to that place? When we, when, that, that, have we gotten it yet? That we're not right, we're broken. And that we mourn that condition. And we're sorry for that condition. And we're meek before God, allowing Him to develop His strength in us. And I want to, again, thank John and Ryan for all the things they put to help us see that and to get that because that is the root of all the Sermon on the Mount right there. That's the root of it. When we get into the teachings of Jesus a little bit later, he'll say, you have been told this, but I'm telling you it's this way. And he's absolutely going against thinking and going against culture and going against their feelings of what they think is right and wrong. And he's saying, it's not that way. Boys, it's this way. The treasure is over here. I know you think it's over there. I know you feel like it's over there. It's over here. Not that way. This way. And until I settle that about myself, I'm going to always be tempted to do what I think is right and to do what I feel is right instead of saying no. I'm going to do what God would tell me is right. That's when the limbs and the fruit can begin to grow. And that's what we begin to read about here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, where he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall see God. When the right view of self and God is in place, it is natural for us to hunger and thirst to be changed. Do you get that? I, I'm not really too hungry and thirsty to be changed when I think I'm right. When I think I know it all, I'm not really hungry and thirsty for other people's opinions. But when I know I don't know it all, when I know I don't have the answer, that's when I'm ready for other people to come in and help me get the answer. And when I know I don't have it right, that's when I get hungry and thirsty for God. Now, hunger and thirst doesn't need much uh, explanation except this. This is not the hungry and the thirsting of, uh, you know, getting in the car after church and someone saying, hey, you want to get lunch? Yeah, yeah, let's get lunch. Where do you, you want to go? I don't, I don't care. What do you want to do? I don't care. Whatever's good. That, that's fine. This isn't the hunger and thirst of, uh, you know, at, at work. You guys want to do something today for lunch? Yeah, what are, you, what, are you, what are you thinking about? No, this is the hunger and thirst that wants nothing else. This is the hunger and thirst that dominates the thoughts and can hear nothing else except, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. This is the hunger and thirst that only waits to eat or drink because there's no way to satisfy it right now. This is the hunger and thirst of parched lips and the hunger that will eat whatever is put in front of them. Because they're hungry. My dad used to drive me crazy when I was a kid. I, you know, sometimes I, I, would, I would come in and say to my dad, can I have a piece of candy? No. I'd say, Dad, I'm hungry. He'd say, get a piece of cheese. I'd say, Dad, I don't want cheese. He'd say, then you're not hungry. I'd say, yeah, I, I am hungry. He'd say, no, you're not. You just want a piece of candy. That's all you really want. You just want a piece of candy is what you want. If you were hungry, you'd eat the piece of cheese. Do you get this? See, this is the, when you're hungry, when you're hungry, you're going to want the, you're, you're going you're to be, you're going to eat what's set, set in front of you. And this is what God is saying. 
When you're hungry, what I set before you, you're going to want. You're going to hunger. If you're hungry and thirsty in the right way, if you've seen me, if you've seen yourself, if you're meek before me, you're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're going to want to live right life the right way. You're going to want to have a heart that is a right heart. Now, I will say this. This hunger is not just a hunger for anything. It's a hunger and a thirst for the righteousness of God. And at first, sometimes when that righteousness gets put in front of us, it doesn't look right to us because we don't think right. And it doesn't feel right to us because we don't feel right. It it looks wrong. It feels the wrong way because we have the wrong intent and the wrong heart and the wrong mind. We need a transformed mind by the power of the Word of God. A a, a heart that wants to do the right thing. This is a hunger and thirst. Get this. I want you to capture this. Not only to do the right thing, but to feel the right way that wants the heartbeat for righteousness, that hates the contrast between what beats in our heart and what is biblical, that begins to recognize what the heart says and what is different about what the Bible says. And we begin to see, man, I have it under control right now. Right now, I have, it, I have it in check, but my heart still beats the wrong way. I, 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 I've, I've got my best Christian armor on that I can put on right now. But if you could get underneath of it, my heart beats the wrong way. I know I can't do that, but under discipline, I'm not doing it right now, but my heart's beating the wrong way. This hunger and thirst for righteousness, this is a desire for righteousness to be the, the, the default setting in my heart. Do you get that? The place my, nat- my heart naturally want, runs to. I'll tell you, you wouldn't like my heart too much if you could see what my natural default settings are. And don't be shocked for, by that because I know a lot of you in this room and I know what some of your default heart, heart settings have been. We've talked about them. We've been in the room together. And some of our default, our defaults, if, if all of us, if our default settings were put up here, in front, none of us would be really proud of those. We wouldn't want the world to see them. That's where our, our minds naturally run, where our responses naturally run, where our hearts naturally run. To stay pure of that, I have to keep hungry for righteousness because if not, I'll revert to the things that are best left behind. So here's the question. What are your default settings right now? Let me ask you just about a couple. What's your default setting with your language? God's given us the ability to communicate for the sake of being encouragers and builders and give strength to others. He's given us this ability to give praise and worship to him. And yet some of us in our default settings, when we get mad or we get angry, words come out that are not pleasing to God. Words come out that we wouldn't want to be heard 
in the church by our church friends. Definitely wouldn't want to say them before the throne of God because our default setting when we get frustrated or angry pours out of us from our hearts. Maybe the default setting goes to jokes or to things that are off color that glorify unrighteousness and make us laugh at unrighteousness. Because in our default setting, that's what entertains us and that's what gets the joke and helps us. What's the default setting in our heart? What's your default setting in frustration? When things aren't, when you're not getting your way, when things aren't going the way that you want them to go, what's your default setting? Are you patient or do you default to anger and frustration and words and things begin to come out of your mouth and actions begin to come out of your life that are filled with, with those things around? What are your default settings about lust? Does your heart beat for more of God or does your heart beat for more of the things of this world? What's your default setting in morality? What, what is it? Are we hungry? See, I've got to recognize, I, I don't need to hide, I need to recognize those things in me. I don't need to dismiss them. I need to know what they are so that I can plead to God, God, I come before you mourning, meek before you, God, heal me, heal me. For he says, those who hunger and thirst for, for righteousness, what's going to happen? They will be satisfied. The flip side of that is, how do I hunger for holiness? Do I want to be like this world or do I want to be separate from this world? Do I want to be pleasing before God, living a life that is pleasing before God, or do I want to fit in with the world that's all around me? What's my default setting towards the poor and the needy of the world? When I hear about, when I see the needs of the poor, do I naturally say, God, be with them, help them? How, how can I help them? And pastor, when I get up or somebody gets up and says, listen, we've got this great need, this, this is going on in the world, is the first response uh, in the sight of that, he's coming after my money again. Or is the natural response inside of it, God, there's a great need in the world and you bless me with so much. God, what, what would you have me to do? God, I can pray for him. Maybe I can give a little to help. What can I do? What's the natural default setting inside of these? What's the natural default setting of my time? Is it my time? I want to use it for me? Or is my default setting, God, how can I serve others? How can I help others? What's the natural? And we could go on and on. See, my default settings are my clearest sign of how I see God and where I am building my life. And I need to understand them in my life. And the call is when I see God clearly and I see myself clearly, I'm going to mourn over my default settings and I'm going to become meek before God and instead of excusing them away, I'm going to begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. How hungry am I? And am I growing in these lessons? Here's a warning. Here's a revelation. When God delivered Israel from Egypt, he gave them the hope of a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, the deliverance of, of Israel from Egypt is what we call a type, an illustration in the Old Testament of what God was going to do for us through the cross in the New Testament. So what happened is they are caught in slavery. They cannot set themselves free. And God, by his grace, 
answers his promise to them and sends Moses and does great miracles until Pharaoh finally says, let him go, and he sets him free from slavery. Now they've got to go to the promised land. They've got, and to go to get to the promised land, they've got to cross through a desert. They've got to get through this desert. And there was a purpose for this desert. They had to learn to act as people of the kingdom because they had lived in a foreign land for so long that if you just dropped them in the middle of the promised land before they had instructions on how to live in the kingdom, they would have made the promised land filled with all the same junk that they were getting out of. So God was remaking them and reordering them and establishing his law with them and establishing his direction with them and teaching them and telling them how they should act. Not only do they have to learn how to act right and how to worship him right and how to respond to him right and to learn that there's only one God, not only do they have to learn all of those things and be set free from their past and those things, but they had to learn how to live by faith, how to trust God for the issues of their life that God will take care of them. If they would do their part, God's going to do his part. So they had lessons to learn. All of us are in the same condition. We get saved, we come out of a foreign world, and we're invited into a new kingdom. We've got to learn how to act in the new kingdom, and we've got to learn how to have faith in God in the new kingdom if we're going to live in the land where we have life to the full that Jesus promises to us. We've got to learn how to do that. So that's the process that they're in. And, and so they had to, de- they had to learn and, and develop. So the development was on. They should have seen the greatness of God and the power of God and how he delivered them from Egypt. I mean, you read this story and you go, what is wrong with these people? God did all these amazing things to get them set free with the final one be parting the sea if they cross on dry land to really set them free from the enemy ever getting to them again. It was right in front of them, just like salvation is right in front of us. But instead of holding on in faith and trusting God and learning Him, they failed over and over again. They missed the poor condition that they were in, and they missed the great God of deliverance. And here's what they did. This is the temptation. They glorified Egypt. Time and again. They would say, we don't like it out here. Why don't we go back to Egypt? We had homes in Egypt. We had fresh fruit to eat in Egypt. We had meat to eat in Egypt. There was water back in Egypt. Let's elect a leader and let's go back to Egypt. Why did God bring us out here to die? That is always the lie of the enemy. My way is better than God's way. I understand it better than God understands it. What I had in the past is better than my future. Folks, they were in slavery in Egypt. And they're dreaming of Egypt. That's how broken their thinking was. That's how broken their feeling was. When we see the greatness of God, we mourn what we are. When we see the greatness of God, 
We become pliable before him to be formed in his image. When we see the greatness of God, we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To not only do the right thing, but to feel, to be the right thing. So my question today is this. What is your desire? To be more like him or to be more like the world? When we, when we hunger for the wrong things, we reject God's things. When we hunger for the wrong things, we're listening to the old voice. We're listening to the broken voice. When we ignore God's direction and morality, when we, when, we, when we ignore God's direction for our life, we're ignoring the great truth that God satisfies. Knowing that satisfaction is only found in the provision of God is the mark of a life that is built to last. That hunger and thirst for righteousness will produce fruit for all occasions. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? In the next few minutes, I'm going to ask them, asking the worship team if they'll come up. In the next minutes or two, I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and they're going to begin to sing a song. They're going to begin to worship. I'm going to invite you to enter into worship with me. And, and, and as, as we enter into worship, I want to invite you, if you'll say to God, God, I recognize some of my default settings are not right right now. I've been making excuses for them. I've been living in a way outside of your word and excusing it away. But God, now I want to bring my actions into righteousness, my words, my actions. Maybe you get your words and actions in control and you say, God, my words and actions, but when I think about what, what's beaten down inside of me, that if I let it loose, God, I'm hungry and I'm, I'm thirsty for righteousness. But even if you've got all those things right and you can't see any of those things, if you'll just say to God, God, today, I just, I just know every work that's happened in me that's good and is right has come from you. And I want more of you to move in my life every day. I never want to revert to my old default settings. I am hungry and thirsty for you. I'm making this appeal as broad as I can make it for anybody who's hungry and thirsty for God. That as we sing this song, just to come down around this altar as a way of saying to God, God, here I am. I am hungry and thirsty for you. Heal me in every way. Let's stand together, and as we sing this song, you come. For some of you, what I'm going to ask you to do on this Sunday morning is a very common thing. For some of you, you may have never done this before, and I'm just going to ask you to trust me as pastor and, and, and to take a step of boldness today. I'm, I'm just going to ask everyone here just to, in, in the next few moments to just lift both your hands to the Lord as, as high as you can lift them. You know, give me just a second. I'm going to explain what to do. Lift them up high. As high as you can. And just say, God, here I am. Here I am. Change my default settings. Make me holy and righteous before you. Do a work in me. Just go ahead and pray that unto the Lord today. Father, where we know we need to be changed. Change us, oh God. Father, let us find new conviction in our spirit. Father, even in places where we don't know, even in places today, Father, 
that we're, we're, we're just so used to them, Lord, that we just think they're right, but our feelers broken and our thinking is broken. Father, convict us and move us and change us. Father, transform us today. We just lift our hands to you. Oh, just pray unto the Lord and invite him into your life today. Just go ahead and lift your voice to him and ask him to say, Lord, come into my life and do your work in me. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Oh, God. Father, today I'm so grateful to know that your spirit comes to teach us all things, to heal us and to make us whole. And so today, Father, we've lifted our hands to you and lifted our voices to you and prayed to you we come around this altar to simply say, Lord, we hunger and thirst for righteousness and your promises will be satisfied. So, Father, I pray that any place in our life where the old man beats and the old man acts, that, Father, if words would start to come of anger or coarse words, Lord, out of our mouth, we'd feel the conviction of your Spirit, that our heart wouldn't beat that way anymore. That, Father, the way we serve in the workplace would be changed. The way we respond to people would be changed because we have a new default setting inside of us. Lord, in Jesus' name, do your work in us. As we hunger and thirst for you, let us think right and feel right because our thinking is in alignment with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, the real mark of hunger and thirst is, we come, is when we come with no conditions. It's not Christ and fame. It's not Christ and wealth. It's not Christ and success. It's not even Christ and health. The least of God's righteousness is better than the greatest of anything else. It is simply Christ and his will that the believer longs for. He is the sole satisfier of the soul. Let me say that again. When I get this, then all my desires begin to change. He's the soul satisfier of the soul. And when I understand he's the soul satisfier of the soul, then the things that I think that my flesh would lean after to try to get satisfaction, I begin to go, wait a second, that didn't line up with God's word. Jesus is the soul satisfier of the soul. It begins to change the way I see the things around me, and it begins to cleanse me and help me because I've seen who God is, and I know who he is, and I know how far I've fallen short, and I invite him to come into my life in all meekness, and I'm hungry and thirsty for him, and he satisfies those who are hungry and thirsty for him. He is the soul satisfier of the soul. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray you'd help us to remember that. Lord, when the enemy would tempt us to go back to Egypt, that we would go, no way. No way. Don't want that. Don't desire that. Jesus is the sole satisfier of the soul. And that we would pursue him in all things. 
Father, bless this congregation. Bless the men and women who are here today. And Father, if there's something in our, in our lives where we're caught on a default setting that we're so used to, we're so accustomed to it, that we still think it's right, Father, convict us of it. Reveal it to us. And I pray that, Father, in the days ahead, Father, men and women around this altar in this congregation today will find themselves talking in new ways, responding in new ways, acting in new ways. Father, turning from some old ways because we're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for we know that your Son is the sole satisfier of the soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I love you. God bless you today. Go in the name of Jesus. And may his presence be on your life this week.